Good morning, Mission Fellowship. And happy Father's Day to all of you fathers that are listening. I hope that each of you know the extreme importance of your role in imaging the loving heart of the Father God to your children. For any of you who observe this day with a hint of grief due to the lack of a father or loss of a father or a broken relationship with your father, I pray that you can see the love of our true Father God in the salvation of Jesus Christ. I am blessed to know so many of you men in our church that I can learn from and who model for me what it is to be a loving dad. Thank you to the many older brothers in Christ that have shown me the Father's heart through mentoring and discipleship and just simple encouragement and care. I hope that each of you are celebrated well today. I'm excited to see many of your faces next week as we attempt to regather in person, Lord willing. I sent out a video link via email on Friday. If you've not taken a look at that, please do. You can also access the video online on our church's Vimeo page. Just go to missionsalem.com and click on the Vimeo logo that looks like a V in the upper right corner of our main page. One quick correction is that masks will be required for anyone 12 years old or older who is attending in person. For children between the ages of 2 and 12, masks are still highly recommended but not required. Let us know if you have any questions we can answer by emailing info at missionsalem.com. This morning, we will be continuing through Mark in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. But first, we will hear from Matthew Galt as he reads Psalm 47, and then we will hear Romans 13, 1 through 8, read by Rachel Galt. Prayers will be given by Wendy Felix and Tyler Robison, and worship will be led by Seth and Daniel Spangle. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would lower our defenses and soften our hearts so that we might learn from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. A reading from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God, he is highly exalted. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. 
pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another is fulfilling the law. This is the word of the Lord. Our beloved Jesus, we lift up our eyes to you. Today, to you whose throne is in heaven, we humbly ask your forgiveness today. Our world is so chaotic, and some of us really struggle with anxiety or anger. Some of us deal with unrighteous judgment, and some of us have passive attitudes or live in a state of irritation at the world. We realize emotions and feelings naturally happen, but when we allow them to reign over our daily life and allow conflict or these emotions to hurt the people around us, it becomes sin. We confess these things to you, Jesus, and we ask you would forgive us our sin. Lord, we thank you for your provisions during this time of COVID and protests. Thank you for our church family, our church body that is learning to work better with each other with the distance between us. We also thank you for the work the elders and our church employees are doing. Thank you for your faithfulness and goodness at all times. Thank you so much that we get to meet next week as a body. Please prepare our hearts for joining together again. We ask you would continue to guide the elders and other decision makers in our church. We pray for the churches here in Salem that are slowly opening doors. We pray for a unity within the body of believers here in Salem that we may do this opening well. We want to show the world that we love our King and we worship Him, but we also want to respect our government and the decisions they have made. Lord, we ask you would continue to strengthen our church. May unity be something we each seek despite our different views and opinions. May we remember that our purpose is Christ-likeness and obedience to God, not self-reliance or creating idols to fill our individual worlds. Lord, we pray we could see your direction clearly, your truths clearly, amidst the protests and unrest that are the focus in our world today. We pray we would be a people not divided. Specifically, Jesus, we pray continued protection over medical workers and emergency providers and their families or the people they interact with. We pray for Hans and other pastors and elders in our city who are making very hard decisions. We pray you would strengthen them and pour out your love on them and guide them. We pray Apostle Paul's words would seep into our hearts that we could consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, that we may gain Christ and be found in him. We love you, Jesus. In your holy name, amen. Imagine going up to a cross-section of strangers on the street in America and asking them this question. When talking with friends or family, if you want to keep the peace... What two topics do you always avoid? What do you think the answer would be? My guess is that the average response would be religion and politics. 
Especially in our country, with the oft-proclaimed adage of separation of church and state, these two topics do not seem to be good bedfellows. But even though many of us would probably guess that these two topics should be separated to keep the peace, the two are constantly intertwined, especially in the current climate of our events in our country. But the question that many of us have as Christians is, how should the two interact? And perhaps more importantly, how do we as Christians interact with the government and its authority in a way that is also fully submitted to Christ and his rule in our lives? And so again, it is fortuitous, but more likely providential, that we find ourselves in a text that so aptly deals with a very pertinent question in our lives today. In this text, beginning in Mark 12:13, we see Jesus in the middle of a political melee in which the stakes are very high. Jesus' answer, wrongly given, could end in arrest for him. But more importantly, Jesus' answer, wrongly given, could lead his followers in a direction of false worship or chaotic rebellion. The topic of politics is indeed a difficult one. But who better for us to observe when interacting with politics than Jesus himself? My hope is that in unpacking this text, we will be able to take with us conviction on what a godly response to politics actually is. So I covet your grace and your open mind and heart as we proceed with the sermon that I've entitled, Jesus and Politics. If you're taking notes, you can write down that title, Jesus and Politics. Let's read from our text today in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. But you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. As we break down what is happening here, the first thing that we see in this text is that, and you can write this down if you're taking down notes, politics can quickly become a false religion. Politics can quickly become a false religion. Right away within the first verse, Mark gives us some very important background that if we are not paying attention, we will speed right past. It starts with, and they we need to first find out who the they is. So we look back to 12.12 here in Mark, and we see they were seeking to arrest him. Well, that doesn't help much, so we go back even further to 12.1, and Jesus told the parable to them. Still not helpful. So we go back even further to the second sentence in 11.27. It says, And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And what were they coming to do? They were coming to challenge Jesus' authority because it did not originate from them and it challenged their authority. We discussed this in depth last week. 
So the they of 1213 is the Sanhedrin, the governing body that acted as the Supreme Court or High Council over all the people of Israel. Now let me pause for a moment and explain the political state of Israel at this point in time because I think you will find it very much like today. Within this body known as the Great Sanhedrin, there were two political parties that held sway, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were more conservative in thought, and their primary goal was to separate Israel as a God-fearing nation through moral enforcement. They believed that Israel was suffering in all the ways that it was because it was a nation in moral decline, and if they could just get enough people to follow the moral law, they would be able to step back into the favor of God for their country. The Sadducees were more liberal in thought and really only practiced the traditions and rituals from a deistic standpoint. They did not believe in the resurrection or life after death, and they were far more fluid in their thinking when it came to morality and the law. But then you also had two other groups at this time. You had the Essenes. Their name is a derivative of the phrase holy ones, and they sequestered themselves in the wilderness at a place called Qumran, where they could stay completely away from politics and devote themselves to purity and following Yahweh. They were the mystics of the day. And lastly, you had the zealots. This was a group that formed around the year 6 AD as a result of the institution of a Roman tax. It came by way of the Syrian governor over Israel at the time named Quirinius, and it is the very tax to which Jesus is referring in this story. Interestingly enough, it's also the tax that caused the census in which Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. Well, as a result of this taxation, the zealots formed to fight, even through violent means, against Roman imperialization. They cared little about moral causes or traditional causes, or really even religious causes. Their god was personal liberty. In the historian Josephus' writings, entitled Jewish Antiquities, he says this about the zealots. They agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. In other words, they are on the same side of the political spectrum as the conservative Pharisees, but they stretch it a bit further. And if you look at their history, it was their personal liberty, not Yahweh, that was their ultimate God. So those were the four groups of Jesus' day that paint the political landscape within Israel. We don't have to stretch our imagination too far to be able to see the parallels in our own day among conservatives and liberals, alt-right, alt-left, and so on. The reason that I bring this up is that we often just stick to the religious categories when thinking of these groups and view this section we are looking at today as purely one about religious hypocrisy. And it is indeed that. But to understand Jesus' message of the kingdom, we must understand the nightmarish political stew that he stepped into. When we realize that these groups that are referred to were in fact political groups that all called themselves Jews and all called themselves followers of Yahweh, we realize the amazing parallel to our current world today. Over and over again, Jesus was getting pulled in the directions of political ideology, being asked to give his proclamation of the kingdom over to the authority of one side. Remember, for example, back to the event where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and John records this. He says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
You see, the Zealots wanted Jesus to be their leader, not because they wanted to submit to his rule, but because they believed that he and his message could be used to accomplish their rule and their ends. You see, politics can quickly become a false religion that seems like the real thing. But let's ask the necessary question. Which political party do you see Jesus favoring and trumpeting their message? The answer is none. But before we move on from this topic, I think it's important to ask the question of how we can identify if we have fallen into the same trap in which our politics have overcome our religion. And our text gives us some great identifiers. First, the false religion of politics seeks to devour anyone outside of its own ideology. Notice that these leaders come to Jesus to trap him in his talk. They didn't come to listen to him to see if it aligns with scripture. They wanted to debate, argue, and trap him in his own words. The word in the Greek has the connotations of hunting for prey. Does that ring a bell? Do you feel like that when talking with certain folks who have mixed up their politics and their religion? Talking to them is like throwing yourself to the wolves. Interestingly enough, when we compare that to the kingdom of God, Jesus was calling anyone and everyone to come and take part. And when they disagreed with him, he would let them depart in peace. In my time as a Christian, it's amazing how quickly lines of Christian or non-Christian can be drawn when talking to someone of a different political ideology. So rare is it where one who proclaims to be on the conservative side of the spectrum and one who proclaims to be on the liberal side of the spectrum can both sit down and agree to worship the same God. Just think about what that would look like to the outside world if two people who proclaim to be political enemies could still learn to reconcile and love the Lord together. Well, second, the false religion of politics forms unholy alliances. Notice that it was the Pharisees and Herodians who came together to trap Jesus. Folks, these two political parties hated each other. The Herodians gave their allegiance to Herod, the puppet of Rome, and the Pharisees were trying to morally reform society so that they could get out from under the finger of Rome. And yet, when it came to the enemy of their enemy, Jesus, they were friends. If you find yourself conforming to a single ideology that isn't based on biblical precedent, you will end up ultimately aligning with people that are against God's full heart. And by biblical precedent, I don't mean the one verse that backs up a given opinion taken out of context. I mean the entirety of scripture. The Bible usually calls us to figure out the nuance of the situation in front of us rather than operating in a rigid ideology. Realize that Jesus displayed no national patriotism, quotes no constitution, promotes no political party, and had no allegiances other than to God the Father. We need to strive to test all things against the truth of Scripture and be willing to dialogue, not argue, about what it says. And in so doing, my experience has been that you will get labeled by some in the church as a liberal and by others in the church as a conservative. And glory in that, dear friends, because you are probably stumbling down the same path as Christ. The kingdom of heaven aligns with Christ and all other allegiances are determined off of that. Well, third, our text shows us that the false religion of politics seeks its own ends alone. Have you ever noticed the foolishness of the political stalemate in our country? 
In a true representative democracy, politicians are to be the servants that represent the voice of their constituents, regardless of if they agree with them or not. And it seems to me that in most places of the country, each and every region has a mix of ideals and values, but many politicians simply look out for self. And we notice this within the history of the leaders of the Sanhedrin as well. In a moment, we will see that the Pharisees were operating in blatant hypocrisy. On the one hand, their entire party was supposedly based on pursuing holiness to gain the favor of God so as to remove the oppression of the Romans. But on the other hand, they gladly participated in the system of Roman taxation to maintain their positions of power and wealth amidst Jewish society. The good news that we see towards the end of the Gospels and in the book of Acts is that some of these Pharisees who were truly seeking after God decided to detach themselves from the political ideology and instead follow Christ as Lord and Savior. The follower of Christ is not after what will result in their success, their comfort, their personal liberties. The follower of Christ participates in the mission of Christ, and that is our priority. All other items are easily cast aside so that this can be the main focus. And this leads us to the next thing that we see in our text. You can write this down if you're taking down notes. The way of God is above politics. The way of God is above politics. It is hilarious that in the midst of attempting to trap and really destroy Jesus, these same hypocritical leaders speak to Jesus a truth that they themselves did not believe. In verse 14, notice that they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. We see their hypocrisy come out in two ways. First, they call him teacher. This is empty because they will only view him as such as long as he doesn't say anything outside of what they already believe. This sounds so much like the present-day church where people on both sides of the political aisle seek pastors and teachers that will itch their ears with the political ideology they already believe, rather than seek to be challenged in God's word. And second, if they know that he is true and only cares about what God desires, why would they be attempting to trap him? But in fact, what they are saying is indeed true. Jesus is above politics, not outside of politics, not against politics, but above politics. Turn with me to our earlier reading from Psalm 47, and let's look at it again there. In Psalm 47, it says this, Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. He has subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Verse 7 says, For God is the king of all the earth. Verse 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Jesus is king and is above all other worldviews and opinions. So often the way we talk as humans is as if God is stuck in the debate of political opinions like a president or a senator. Dear brothers and sisters, he is the one that is the giver of all law and authority. 
He is the origination of law, of truth, and of authority. It is not his job to condescend to our myopic, finite views of issues. It is our job to seek out his will. But instead of doing that, we are more like those pictured in Psalm 2. Why don't you turn there with me? Psalm 2. It begins with this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God alone sits in authority, and when he restores heaven and earth and brings justice to bear, and sits enthroned on the praises of all people, all ethnicities, all languages, all tribes, his view of shalom will be a whole lot different than any one human political ideology can envision. And dear brothers and sisters, please recognize that the enthronement of Jesus as Lord and King is not something that will only take place in some distant future. It took place at the cross, the resurrection and ascension 2,000 years ago. Allegiance to Christ removes allegiance to a conservative or liberal viewpoint. It renders them ineffective and obsolete for the Christian, and it calls us to represent Christ in love and wisdom. Our politics should fall in line with our obedience and allegiance to Christ and his word. So does this mean that we ignore politics and become like the Essenes or the Zealots? No, it means that we look at what government was intended to provide within God's will, and we honor it as such. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, and see what it is called by some as the institution of human government. Genesis 9, verse 6. It says there, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here we see the after effects of the flood that left only Noah and his family. God steps into a covenant with him that carries with it the command of the Edemic covenant to be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it as image bearers of God. And we see that in verse 1 there in chapter 9. But then also God installs this new idea in verse 6, and this is the general idea of what is commonly called in the Latin lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. Simply put, it means that the punishment should fit the crime, and it is the institution of society stated as man here. By man shall his blood be shed. This became the basis for all Judaic law, which in turn became the basis for the majority of law in the Western world as we know it today. Prior to this, society existed in tribal units with tribal heads, but this is giving a more corporate or communal understanding that there will need to be authority over societal units that will enforce law and protect life because a life is the image of God. Genesis 9-6 institutes two great truths. Government has been given authority by God to maintain order, and that order's primary concern is the protection of human life. It is therefore a biblical truth that government, when operating within this God-given assignment, is acting with the full backing of God's authority. And when the government is not, 
It is our duty as Christians to involve ourselves to point them back to this God-given duty, but to do so in a way that glorifies and honors God. And we need to do this whenever we see the heart of God broken. We can't just choose our pet projects. We need to do this across the board. When we see oppression of unborn children, we are to act. When we see oppression of certain people groups, we are to act. When we see injustice in the systems of our society, we need to act. It is our God-given duty to call our government back to that which God desires for them to do. And this idea that the authority of government is nested within the authority of God is what Paul carries forward in our reading from Romans 13. Would you turn there with me and read the first eight verses of Romans 13? It says this in Romans 13, 1 through 8. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now before we move on, I have to point out that the authorities that were in place at the time of this writing were horrifically evil men like Caesar Nero, who was killing Christians left and right. Paul is not giving carte blanche authority to any governmental individual or regime here. He is painting the picture of what government was for, and that how we interact with government very much illustrates our submission to God himself. Notice that Romans 13 falls right in the middle of what some Bibles entitle the marks of a true Christian in chapter 12. Paul is declaring that human governmental authority is derived from God's authority, and this authority can easily be abused and misused. And it is not in God's plan or will that it is abused and misused. But the authority behind all government is delegated by God. Think for a moment of Jesus saying to Pontius Pilate, who was about to use his power wrongly to harm and kill Jesus, Jesus says to him, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Now this should cause us to pause, dear brothers and sisters, because what the Bible is clearly stating is that as long as government authority is within God's appointed job description of what it was supposed to be doing, we should be submitting to it. And really any authority, authority in the home, authority in the church, authority in government, is only valid as long as it is operating within God's appointed purposes and will. And when that authority goes beyond the bounds of what is God-given and begins to usurp authority and rights and oppress people, 
made in the image of God, it is right and good for us to stand up and through the means provided by God, in good order, press against ungodly authority. But the onus lands upon those going against the authority to prove that the authority is not acting in a way that is biblical or godly. We cannot simply respond with, I don't like it. If we're doing that, we are setting ourselves up as lawgiver and judge. The fullness of authority has to always go back to God's will of justice and righteousness. And this is what we see back in Mark 12. Let's go ahead and go back there and see Jesus's response. They try to entrap Jesus in a question about taxes. But notice the interchange. Jesus asks them for a denarius. And this was the currency that was required to pay the tax that ultimately landed in the coffers of Rome. And currency served as propaganda. On it was the face of the emperor, Tiberius, and an inscription that called him son of the divine Augustus, son of the god Augustus, in other words. On the reverse side was a picture of Tiberius's mother seated on a throne and celebrating the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which was the subjection of all peoples to Caesar. And it also had a statement that Caesar was high priest. In all these ways, this coin dripped with everything that the Jews hated. It was nothing but blasphemy. And this is why this coin would only be used to pay the tax. Otherwise, on a daily basis, Jews would use non-minted copper coins for currency that bore no image upon them. Notice that Jesus did not have one of these, but one of the Pharisees did, indicating their willing participation in the system that they supposedly stood against. This would be like a person in our day railing against the government and its welfare programs, but happily taking Social Security and Medicare when their time comes. In this, he not only knows their hypocrisy, but points it out to anyone listening. Their hypocrisy overflows here to the reader because we can see that they are not standing upon any principle, but rather they are simply motivated by hatred of their enemy, Jesus. This seems very much like the politics of today, not motivated on a principle, simply motivated by hatred of their enemies. Here, the Pharisees don't care which way Jesus is destroyed, just that he is. If he says that they should not pay taxes, then he will seem like an agitator and can be arrested. If he says that they should pay taxes, he will lose face in front of the Jewish people as a false messiah on the side of Rome. They are acting as if they are seeking truth, but really, they are just wanting their own ends achieved. They are wanting to be in control and have the power, which is really what politics is all about. Who is in control? But Jesus wisely and pointedly puts the debate to rest. Look again at his words in Mark twelve seventeen. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. From this statement, we get our last point and our application for today. You can write this down if you want. Worship the reigning divine king and honor the governing authority. Worship the reigning divine king and honor the governing authority. In his commentary on the book of Romans, John Stott does a great job of summarizing the church's response to government over the last 2,000 years. He gives these four options of how the church has tried to interact with government. First, the idea that the state controls the church. 
This was largely seen in the Middle Ages, and it led to a very compromising church. Second, the church controls the state, and this was attempted by the early Protestants. It led to an abusive church. Third was a compromise put forth by the Emperor Constantine in which the state favors the church, and the church accommodates the state to retain its favor. This leads to a watered-down church. And lastly, the idea of partnership. The church and state recognize and encourage one another's God-given responsibilities in a spirit of constructive collaboration. Stott argues in his commentary, and I would agree, that this seems to fit the best with the words of Jesus, Paul, and Peter in the New Testament. Which does Jesus commend? Well, let's first notice what Jesus does not commend. He does not say to fight tooth and nail against the government. And realize that at the time of Jesus, there were literally zero Christian-based agencies of government. All were pagan in some capacity, and yet they are recognized by Jesus, Paul, and Peter as given authority by God. The only group fighting to remove the government so that they could have full personal liberty was the zealots. But Jesus does not back their worldview. One commentator looks at Jesus' interaction with the zealots, and he says this, Quote, the zealots believed that they could serve God by denying the authority of Caesar. And here in Mark, by placing his two commands side by side, Jesus denies that men will come to God's kingdom by destroying Caesar's. End quote. Paul, in his writing to the church at Rome, regards governmental authority as established by God and requires Christians to happily submit to their authority as long as it does not usurp God's divine reign or view of righteousness and justice. Paul viewed Jesus as divine sovereign under which human governments were given the right to use their authority to keep order and protect human life because of the innate value of being image bearers of God. When the government asks us to do something contrary to that, or acts in unjust ways that removes or denies the image of God in one or a group of people, Our loyalty to God requires us to disobey and speak up, calling our governmental authorities to return to the will of God. But he does not call us to overthrow the government. He also does not cave to the government and give them carte blanche authority. God asks us to exist in the balance. But then Jesus finishes with the true core of the allegiance that every Christ follower should have. He says, Render to God the things that are God's. It is out of this statement that our earthly politics, if you will, should overflow. Just as the coins that bore the image of Caesar are to be rendered or given back to him, those that bear the image of God should be rendered to God. Jesus is relying on the statement here, originating in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image. And that same idea was repeated to Noah, that man is made in the image of God in what we read earlier in Genesis 9. Jesus's point was that these men standing before him whose lives so blatantly were the product of political idolatry and focus on self and power were not actually giving themselves over to God. If they were, they would be submitting themselves to Christ, the very one standing before them whom they are betraying. Their politics And their false religion had blinded them to the truth of God. We have to be so careful that the same is not true for us. 
And that is the problem when any ideology, political or otherwise, steps in to take priority over the very clear guidance of God's truth. We betray God as king and set ourselves up as lawgiver and judge. Just as Paul said in Romans 13, we are to render taxes and honor to the governing authorities. He also said in Romans 8.12 that we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but to live according to the spirit and holiness. We are to love the Lord our God with all our mind, heart, and soul. And as it says in Romans 13.8, we are then also to owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. In Colossians 2.13-15, Paul uses this idea of being a debtor and speaks to the same truth that Jesus was trying to put forward. This is Colossians 2.13-15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, in dying for your sins and mine, Jesus paid the debt that your sin and mine accumulated against our Creator God. And in that moment that He died and then resurrected as victorious King, we became debtors to Him. He purchased us by His blood, and we are not our own now to walk in our own authority. We are His, bearing His image, to do with as He pleases, and to recognize that our only mission in this life is to reflect Him, His righteousness, justice, love, kindness, compassion, and mercy, no matter the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And dear church, this time amidst COVID-19 is just the time to do that. We simply need to adapt in the way that we do it. Our mission is not halted. It is more important than ever. If you have not given your life over to Christ as King and ultimate Lord and ruler of your life, today is the day to do that. Right where you sit, give your life over to him. Recognize that you have been your own lawgiver and judge and repent and hand your life over to him. This is the first and most immediate application of our text today. We were bought at an infinite cost, and our lives are not our own. This is the main thrust of the text today. Render to God what is God's. And from that point of the authority of Jesus in our life, we then honor the governing authorities in a way that should naturally flow. And it is here that we find some other very practical applications in the line, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. First, if we are believers, we need to ask the question of whether or not we are honoring God and his authority in our lives. Are we reading and intentionally studying the word of God consistently and constantly so that we might know his commands in our life? If not, I would suggest that you might not actually care to know his authority. Are we people who receive information and opinions that are contrary to what we currently believe without fear or worry that we will get sucked into a view contrary to God? Dear brothers and sisters, if your faith is strong and if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you will be able to receive any information and not be taken into falsehood. 
In this time when conversation is so important around the topic of racial reconciliation, I hope that we will be a church that spends multiple conversations, not just one or two, looking at scripture together and calling each other to the truth of righteousness and justice. Conversations need to happen, and we can't be those who are quick to defend our previous position and just hold tight. We all need to search the scriptures together. Are we a people who actually, practically sit under submission to God's word? And beyond that, are we people who actually practically sit under submission to our brothers and sisters in the body and the leaders of the body with whom we fellowship? Or do we practically sit only under our own authority so that we can divide whenever we alone decide it is time? Second, we can ask the question of, are we interacting with the government and society in which we exist in a way that will honor God? and draw others to know the kindness of God that draws men to repentance. Let's pause for a moment and test our actions against Scripture. And even if you're frustrated with what I've said already, let me remind you that what I'm about to read is from Scripture. And listen with a soft heart and ask yourself, are my actions fulfilling these commands? This is from 1 Timothy 2, 1-3. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This is from Titus 3, 1-2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is from 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Dear brothers and sisters, regardless of where you land in terms of ideology, what do you and I need to adjust in the way we are viewing thinking about, and talking about government leaders and state authorities, especially as it relates to what we're posting on social media so that you are honoring the blatant commands of Scripture we just covered. Third, when we choose something on which to push back, do we push back through the government-approved means such as civil disobedience, the court system, peaceful protesting, and so on? Or do we push back in ways that are unhelpful and vitriolic and simply cause division? And what are we choosing to push back on? Is it something of weight that has to do with oppression, injustice, martyrdom, persecution? When we look at the Bible, we see examples of when it was good to push back. For example, Pharaoh 
ordering the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborns, but they refused and hid the babies. King Nebuchadnezzar telling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to his image over and above God. King Darius requiring that no one pray to anyone but himself. The Sanhedrin banning the preaching of Jesus. And yet the apostles did it anyway. These are issues worthy of pushback. Dear brothers and sisters, let me clarify a couple of items for you as to this current season of COVID-19. First, the government is not acting in any of the ways I just outlined. The season in which they have requested us to limit our numbers in indoor gatherings has not been persecution against Christians, nor has it been requiring churches to forsake gathering together. Whether or not it was a good move according to the economy That is not a topic that I'm covering. But what we know for sure is that it was not persecution nor martyrdom. I've been gathering with my family each week to worship Jesus. The government has not stopped me from doing that. It has simply been asking for partnership in mitigating the spread of something that has and will result in a safety issue to the lives of people in our community. Now, I know that many of you want to debate numbers and statistics and whether or not this was as big as they said it was or not. But remember, the purpose of government is to protect lives, and that is what they've been trying to do regarding COVID-19. Nothing they have asked us is against biblical principles. We have merely gathered together in a different way, and we will continue to adjust and adapt as time goes on all the while honoring God, whether it be in our homes or here in this church building that I'm recording in. Also, when it comes to the topic of wearing masks, let's recognize that this is not persecution or martyrdom. If you have a true medical condition that makes it difficult, I recognize and am so sorry that this is such a hard season. And that makes sense. But recognize that the reason for this is again simply to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. And for those of us that don't have an underlying medical condition that makes wearing masks difficult, we should do so. It is not meant to eradicate COVID-19, and it is not to single out Christians in persecution. A cloth mask simply adds a barrier to hold back particulates that are emitted when speaking, singing, coughing, or sneezing. It is not a perfect solution, but it is a way to help mitigate the spread and to do our best to show care for one another. And dear brothers and sisters, if all it takes is a mask to show someone nearby that I love them and I value them as an image bearer of God, just as I respect and value myself, then I should be happy to wear one. Think about it along the same lines of Jesus's words in Matthew 5:40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Dear brothers and sisters, wearing a mask is not too much to ask for a season. Let's honor the request of the government during this time. If it means that we can get together and see half of one another's faces and give praise to God corporately, then we can do it. Lastly, On this Father's Day, I want to ask the Fathers of Mission Fellowship to ponder this question. 
As our children watch us, what are they observing? Are they seeing men that have given their lives over to serve Christ or men that act to serve self? Are they seeing humble men under the authority of God, his people, and the civil authorities? Or are they seeing prideful and rebellious men who only answer to themselves? Are they observing men whose politics take a much lower priority than serving God? Are our children observing and being discipled in the need to stand firmly on principle and the word of God when governing authorities are abusing their power and harming others or oppressing others? Are they having conversations with us that we initiate about ways in which the government might not be honoring God and then participating in prayer with us for those same leaders and topics? Are they seeing us speak of politics as if it's life or death or speaking of the gospel as if it is truly life or death? Are they observing civil disobedience that honors God and is based on biblical truth rather than just personal opinion? Or are they seeing us operate in disobedience against the very scripture that we just read earlier about honoring those in authority? Are they being taught to think critically and realize that no one but God has all the answers? These are good questions for us to ponder. And if you miss them, I would ask you to go back and rewind a few seconds to catch all of them and ask yourself if there is conviction in any one of those questions for you to make a change. In our text today, Jesus could have easily fallen into the trap of making politics the main issue. But instead, he rose above the politics and caused those around him to ask the question of whether or not they had given their lives over to the God that created them in obedience. Jesus' politics didn't get in the way of his proclamation of the kingdom of God. I hope and pray that each of us can deal with politics in the same way so that all glory is given to God and to God alone.
Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are our reigning king. We pray that you would come soon. You are our portion, therefore we put our hope in you, Yahweh. You have seen our brokenness, and you have inclined your ear to hear us. May we be a people that does not harden our hearts to you. 
Instead, continue to humble us and make us reliant on you and you alone. We see, Yahweh, how easy it is to put our hope in politics. We get discouraged and become hopeless when inevitably political parties and systems let us down. We pray that we could walk in the newness of life given through your Son, Jesus, this week. We pray that we would engage our political system with the gospel message that you and you alone are the only true king and that you alone deserve our allegiance. May our voices be heard and may they be heard echoing the righteousness and justice that you require from your people. Righteousness and justice that flows from the love and mercy you have shown to us. Give us wisdom, we pray, God, to be faithful to you, to be faithful to each other, and to be faithful to our neighbor, to act justly, and to walk in righteousness. May we sing praises to you, Lord, for you are the King of all the earth. Your mercies are new every morning. We look forward to your return, and we pray, come quickly, Lord. You are our only hope. Through the name and the precious, innocent blood of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. The Lord bless thee. The Lord keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Mission Fellowship, may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours in abundance this week.